and welcome back to another episode of In Conversation With, a series of interviews with Singaporean writers, publishers, educators, and more. In this episode, my guest interviewer, Tara Lim, and I speak to the ever-delightful Yao Kai Chai about the philosophical and the literary, the nebulous and the granular. What is a good poem? What does it mean to understand something? And for the Kai Chai fanboys out there, why lakes and why towers? For one hour, the enigmatic author of Secret Mentor, Pretend I'm Not Here, and One to the Dark Tower comes, puts his cards on the table, and gives us generous insight into his life and his mind. Personally, I was completely confounded by my first reading of Dark Tower. The words formed an unscalable wall. But read again and again, without the academic need for comprehension or close reading, I began to simply immerse myself in the intriguing worlds the words conjured up. The wall was still unscalable. After all, you can't really say, I know what a Kaichai poem means exactly. But the bricks began to speak. Kaichai's voice is singular, singularly coy. Its practiced art of seduction, revealing itself slowly after repeated reading, betrays a sadomasochistic king. For some, this foreplay can be frustrating and tiresome. For others, there might be delight in the teasing and the tussle. Ultimately, despite the apparent suspension of meaning and feeling, there is a human voice I am encountering, because it is playful. Kaichai embraces the playfulness of postmodernism, and he sure gets a kick out of it. Without further ado, in conversation with Yao Kaichai. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Sploosh. So today I'm here with Daryl Lim. And we're interviewing Yao Kai Chai. Hello. So for those of you who do not know him, he's a poet whose most recent work, One to the Dark Tower Comes, won the Singapore Literature Prize last year. Um, He has had a long time in the media industry working as a journalist at The Straits Times. And he was also formerly the director of the Singapore Writers Festival. So I think to just warm us up, Kai Chai, what have you been reading, watching or listening to? Mm. Yeah, so... The latest book I've gotten, well, it was a gift from Myung Shu Hung, a fellow poet who knows that I like her writing. Yeah, so uh, it's called A Film in Which I Play Everyone. The title itself is from a David Bowie interview where a journalist asked him, what's your next project? And then, I don't know whether it's in a facetious way, he said that I like to make a film in which I play everyone. So I thought that it touches on all the things I like, you know, like films and role-playing and stuff. It sounds a bit weird for a 10am interview. But anyway, and Toby Martinez de la Rivas, I don't know how that, that's how you pronounce his name, is a British poet whose third book is called Flood Meadows. It's a book about incantations, a kind of Ted Hughes, pastoral, but a bit of uh, interdisciplinary stuff. So again, one of those things that I like. So these two books are realistically the real books that I'm reading. There are a lot of other stuff that I'm reading for fun and for torture. Um, listening to music-wise, the latest is the Sufjan Stevens album called Javelin, which is about, well, only after the fact that we know that it's about the, the death of his partner. I, I thought it's useful to start off with some sense of biography. Maybe even before I talk about the first question, which is about when you wanted to start writing poetry. Maybe tell us a bit about your family background, how you grew up. Was 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 uh was there even a sense then that you would be an artist of some sort? Well, I guess I am the only one in my family to to go to the university, and I'm the youngest of four. So in that sense, I do feel kind of the lone again the the idea of loneliness the the one that's odd one out and everything. But I also felt that I should live up to my parents' expectations. So they're not educated or anything, but um, but they believe in education. So your answer your question is that, oh, how do I... Yeah, yeah. So it's not a, it's not a cultural milieu that, that, that you would expect, but but I think they left, they left it to me to discover things on my own. And I was... Discovered television, discovered films, music at a very young age. And I absorbed almost everything. So I'd, I'd never had the distinction of 
having to say that oh I want to listen to high art or like uh, classical music and then I, I, like, I can't listen to pop music so I never had that prejudice for or against any particular genre of stuff so only when when I got I got into writing and uh, creative writing when I realized oh okay you're, you're not supposed to write certain kinds of writing because they are not seen as true writing. Yeah, that, then, then that's where I realized that there there's a hierarchy of uh, taste levels. Not that I'm exempt from, but I, I feel that if you start from that, you'll never write things which you're not necessarily uh, good at or know that you're not good at or good at. So if you have already set out limitations as to what you want to write, then you just self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You only write the things that you think you're good at, but actually you suck at it. Or you never had a chance to write things which you never know you're actually quite good at it because you already felt that I want to be a certain kind of writer. In terms of art form, so actually what was the first art form that really attracted you? So I, I See, the word art form is problematic, right? Uh, I, music, I guess media. Yeah. yeah, I guess media would be it. So... Uh, Television, films. I watch a lot of films growing up because my mom, yeah, like, I don't know whether, yeah, I threw her under the bus. Uh, yeah, dragged me, or not dragged me, just carried me to watch a, like a horror movie. Like, I don't know whether you're, oh, you're all very young. In the 1970s, uh, like, open air cinema or like, watch scary Asian horror film, 1970s, you know, like, 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 snakes, snake woman, what kind of, kind of thing, like. So, these films are not, are not really appropriate for <laughs> anyone, infants or kids. But yeah, so so I enjoyed it as kind of a communal activity, a, a, a kind of space to to get transported. The idea of transformation, the idea of, oh, you don't have to be stuck in a particular world that you are birthed into. You can you can imagine different worlds. I guess that's probably the, the seed of uh, why or how I write, I guess. Yeah. And then how, how did that link in some way to... Because in, film is film and music is, is, is music, but mm. writing, of course, is, is a leap from that. So right. how did you start to then write from... Although your first, in some ways, influences with film... Yeah, and the film funny thing is that I did not grow up in an English-speaking family. So the real contact with the English language was when I was in primary school, kindergarten, I guess, yeah. But it wasn't something that was spoken at home. But so when I went into primary school or kindergarten, I realized that, oh, there are some people who could speak English and, and then I felt like, oh, I couldn't, right? But I've, I guess I was competitive. I always felt that just because you, you started first doesn't mean I couldn't catch up with you. So I guess I, I realized English was something which I could excel at and probably the one that I find quite empowering that you can, you can go anywhere, right? I mean, it's kind of step two. Yeah, everything like for, for for a person who was born into I, I wouldn't say we were, I was middle class, obviously lower than middle class. So so English language became a vessel, a channel to to discovering so many different worlds, especially in Singapore in the nineteen seventies, yeah, eighties, yeah. Do you recall the, the first um thing you tried to write? The first creative work that you tried to write? Um consciously it would be in the 1960s, 70s or 80s, I think there was a school student magazine called Student World that was read by students of that time. And and you could win like $10, first prize, second prize. So I participated and I thought, I know won. So, so I think I wrote silly limericks and things that rhyme as, as you would when you were setting out like poetry has to rhyme. And I don't have the copy anymore. But I won. I mean, it's kind of national competition, right? Actually, I don't know what the, about distribution, but it was distributed among schools, primary schools. In my mind, there were interesting poems, but perhaps they are, they are not really that good. But, but that gave me some kind of confidence that maybe I should explore creative writing. But at that time, you don't want to go in. Maybe no, nobody, wants you, nobody wanted you to go into the arts because, it, you know, poetry is a luxury. Yeah, we cannot afford so really, honestly, you art is something that you do as an aside, not something that you do as part of. Like probably say I'm a, I'm a poet would be so embarrassing. I don't know whether y'all remember the time when you would not say you're a poet. Yeah, I I think growing up, um, the possibility of a career in the arts was quite remote. 
in the 90s. Lah. Yeah. Even then, I think after that, it really changed. Like maybe in the last 15 or 10 years. Okay, one more question. Just uh, do you recall the first book or literary work that really captured your imagination? Captured my imagination? But it was so young, right? Right. I mean, Annie Blyton, everybody would have read. So, I, 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 yeah, Annie Blyton, The Famous Five, all those stuff. Yeah, so, so I guess my, my dad, again, he just bought me lots of books. I mean, he didn't read to me, but he just... And therefore, you just pick up and, and I read them all. All the politically incorrect, like Gollywogs and stuff. Oops. Yeah. So, so basically, reading them, not just purely for the language, but just... Again, the, 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 the different type of worlds that there's another world out there somewhere in this mythical land, huh. right? I don't know England or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, so the language and the metaphors, I guess osmosis, you don't read, it's not studied or anything, it's just something that uh, naturally you just, yeah, so I think all those are, uh, I want to capture my imagination. But, you talk, but if you ask me about literary, like very consciously, that would be like secondary school, right? That would be, yeah, we'll come to that, right? Okay, sure. Yeah, I, I like the idea of England as a as a fictional country because <laughs> in some ways it was like it was like I, I, as as remote as a mythological land. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the weather is different. The people look different. I mean, they were they were. I don't know whether you you all have seen the books. There were illustrations. They, they look. I I know the ones that you are talking about. Yeah. I know your your archivist. <laughs> you collect sorts of. Yes. Maybe we talk a little bit about film since that has already dominated the discussion. In some ways, I think film is very influential for yeah. for you. So maybe just talk a little bit about how, how film, what impact it had on you. And I think we will come to that a bit more as we talk about the writing itself, but um, also how that influences your writing. And in some ways, the two for you are quite linked. Mm. I think films have been and are still an escape for most Singaporeans, right? Okay, maybe when you were growing up, maybe not your time, sorry. In the 80s, going to the cinema was an adventure. Just going to the cinema itself. It's not like now it's so easy and you just choose cinemas where it's all, it's all streaming. So the idea of going to cinema was a, a kind of special occasion for my family. So for many Singaporeans. So the idea of watching it in a communal setting, as I mentioned, um, it was so, so special and watching the audience as well was special. So in a way, I'm, uh, cinema was the actualization of uh, everything that I imagined I want to do in my writing, right? Because you have a 3D environment, you will see some kind of projection, uh, you notice, I mean, you hear, okay, so it sends around. So, so, so the, all the auditory, the, the tactile, the olfactory, all those senses are, are being invoked in, in, in a cinematic experience. So it's not just the movie, but the whole uh, movie-going experience. So in that way, I start, start to link to my writing. I'm hoping to invoke all these sensory experiences rather than purely to absorb it on the textual level on a you know you know word level so it's meant to be hyper hyper real more like beyond words mm -hmm. and i i think one of the questions which you sent to me earlier uh, was to kind of catch me off guard to see what i said many years ago to desmond con about that like, i don't understand everything essentially it's like it's like a cinematic experience right when you watch a movie do you understand everything that you watch not on the first time that you watch, right? Perhaps you are too young or maybe you didn't watch everything, you went to toilet or whatever, or you were, sleep, you were sleeping or whatever. So to understand, to feel, fully feel a film, you have to immerse yourself over and over again. So I, I, I would like to think of my books as something which you don't necessarily understand. I hate the word understand. Actually, I want you to just immerse in it. Understanding is fraught and it can be judgmental yeah yeah in some ways i guess the posture of understanding is maybe not the right approach to art be it film or be it a poetry right you don't want you don't really want to intellectually understand works of art i think it's also because of the way we're taught in school about literature like what is this poem about <laughs> can you imagine that would be the first question Right, oh my God, that would be the like the encapsulation of what like 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 you circumscribe. There was what this point about, and that is the like the model answer. The truth is that maybe that's not what the poem is about. 
That's right. I mean, just, just to add on to this, I think it'd be absurd to ask someone, what is this painting about? Mm. Oh, like <laughs> It would be, right? <laughs> like, like, or how do you understand this painting? Yeah, and also don't want the uh, artist or the poet or anyone to explain his or her own poem. Because, the, I don't know, as a writer, you wouldn't want to people to only interpret a poem the way you want it to be. In fact, I, I like misreadings. But again, you've got to be careful what I say. Huh? You've got to, you got to take my, my words with a pinch. I like misreadings because misreadings sometimes open up different conversations rather than say, oh, you're wrong. That's not what my poem is about. In fact, I think that once once you write something, it's not your, it's not for you to dictate how it should be read. I'm not saying that um, uh, you can you can be like far off it, but I like the idea of possibilities and maybe perhaps it opens up other ways of looking at things. And then you could be wrong. None of us are hundred uh, percent right all the time, and I like to learn from the readers actually. Yeah, I love to learn it from younger generations who are exposed to different things. If I were your age, what would I write? I guess that's what. Or if you were my age, would you would you would you write my stuff, or would you just write like a lot of my contemporaries? Uh? Oops, don't don't want to name names, right? <laughs> it's okay. We we can go into that um later. Since we're on writing, let me we can jump a bit to to the writing itself because we have a few questions there. I'll let uh Hao Yang, who has done a lot of study <laughs> and work for the questions mm, yes. do his uh, thing yeah. <laughs> but yeah I think for most readers right the general impression of your writing is that it's really hard to understand right you, the word again understand right and especially so in later works especially once the dark power comes mm. so now I was reading the critical introduction on poetry.sg mm, so David true. Wong writes you know, the pursuit of the image drives memory and experience you know, these are classical things you look out for in poetry mm. right mm. so far from their point of origin that sentiment is abstracted out of existence. So I'll read a sample from the uh, poem Once the Dark Tower Comes in Declaration. Ditch those breastplates, prop up the tailboard, and have some marshmallows. Then let's talk about why you are banging on the wrong one. Pizzicato strings seesaw for the answer dangling. So it's quite hard, I guess, for the um, average reader to, I guess, find feeling or meaning in these lines, right? Um, and so it does not quite fit, you know, really conventional understandings of poetry as, you know, what's, what words were the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings or as a means of, you know, ordering human experience into something meaningful that you can convey to other people, right? So perhaps to begin with, I'd like to just ask you, like, what do you see a poem as? And then what is a good poem to you? I mean, I like all your... Yeah, uh references and I would say it's fair fair to say that uh, it's not easy to uh, read my poetry and not feel frustrated so I would not be delusional to think that what I write is understandable but again that's why I said that perhaps that's kind of foolhardy uh, errand to to start with that because if you start with the idea of wanting to understand every single word then you will get trapped into trying to solve mysteries. While my priority is not to uh, lead you from point A to point B, but actually to let you loose in this universe of maybe, uh, you know, red herrings and um, sex and stuff. And I don't like to explain. Yeah, so you ask me what is a poem, what is a good poem? I don't like to explain because I like the audience or the readers. Instead, I use the word audience partly because I like it to be something that uh, the, the frustration is part of it. Yeah, kind of. A, I, I'm kind of a sadomasochist. I like the reader to feel like, oh my god, this is so horrible. Or this is, uh, I mean, I've read uh, uh, NUS Honors Thesis. This is somebody who did a thesis on me and a few other writers. and. I think she really hated my poetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay to hate, but it's it's how you explain it. And I was like, okay, you obviously asked the wrong questions. So again, I I because as a viewer myself, as someone who does reviewing, uh, did reviewing in my time in uh, in ST, it's fine. It's it's actually fair to also judge the reviewer. Just as the reviewer reviews stuff, 
we can also review the reviewer, <laughs> right? So I think it's fair. So I just say that mm, now you ask the wrong question. So I don't really take your words too seriously. Maybe, it, but but part of a frustration is also like exactly the glee that I also want because that means that she's unable to experience the poetry like she, she would like to think that uh, the other poetry she understood and she really loves them which is fine nothing wrong with that but because she chose my poetry yeah. i mean i didn't force her to choose but she just didn't realize that actually it's so different uh, different uh, armory of tools and i guess she wasn't open to it or doesn't really know how to talk about it or maybe she has a deadline oops she has a thesis deadline she has a fee. and i think that's uh, scary uh, i would say that yeah I, I don't really want to define a poem or what a good poem is. I think you you need to define a poem or even what a good poem is on your own terms. Like, I can tell you, uh, this is a poem, but actually it's a prose passage or this is actually an essay. But I think in this day and age, without me saying, I'm sure you have seen a lot of your contemporaries, a lot of them are writing stuff which normally would have been classified as as an essay, but it calls itself a poem. Why? We haven't entered the, the grey area called prose poem. Uh, and something like what Sean Hood did, right? Uh, would that qualify as poetry maybe 10 years ago? 10 years ago, maybe, yeah, it might be. But the truth is that a, a, a poem is a very porous uh, entity that, that absorbs all the other genres and you can call it whatever it's kind of a rebel a kind of a shapeshifter unfortunately that one doesn't apply the kind of doesn't apply too much to the rest of the genres like prose or maybe creative non-fiction yeah but you think about it poetry these days is almost scarier right for anyone who's like oops this is so different from what i studied in school 10 years ago it's like oh me this is called poetry as well and that's what i like yeah yeah. I, I thought maybe I'd just jump in here and I, in some ways I see Kai Chai's um, his work as a series of innuendos and of course innuendos means you either get it or it can mean many things to you or it cannot so that's one way of seeing it the other way which I just thought of the, another metaphor that I thought of uh, for your poems is in some ways an alien artifact so you kind of you kind of stumble upon alien artifacts as you go about and in some ways you're trying to figure out what is the origin of this artifact they come from outer space <laughs> who made it and so in some ways I, I, I think of these two uh, ways of thinking about your poetry yeah. no I, I really like that image uh, yeah for all the cinematic evocations that, I, that, 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 it, that it does and I, I really like it thank you very much I will use it and attribute it to you okay so um, next for a more I guess historical kind of question right so you know there are some continuities from Secret Menta to Once a Dark Power Comes I like identify you know, attention to objects and images use of illusions shifting perspectives play with language and kind of rightly self-consciousness but you know while self while Secret Menta is still grounded in familiar concerns you know like sure. whether it's family or local concerns right Dark Tower it's, it's more opaque Right, yeah. and it's as if the linguistic and semantic concerns have now become, you know, both style and substance. And to me, I guess that kind of trajectory mirrors the progression, I guess, from programmatic to non-programmatic music, for example, in twentieth century, right, or from figurative to non-figurative art. Before we dive deeper into the individual collections, can you just tell us about how your approach to poetry has changed over the years or remained the same? Yeah, I, I, I think if you put it that way, uh, it's true. Yeah, I mean, the secret mentor wasn't exactly the way I wanted it to be, to be honest. I mean, uh, it was published by Lemark. Um I had a editor called Leslie Yao, who is not related to me. <laughs> yeah, so what she did was, at that time, was that she took out what I thought were the difficult poems. Yeah, so she kept more of the familial and familiar poems. Uh, yeah. So it became a, a, a collection that's really primarily about family, and which is fine, um, but it wasn't what I intended to be. It was meant to be called The Dumb Creatures, which has all the uh, double play of the... It's based on a quote from Virginia Woolf about what she said, that we, we think of animals as the dumb creatures, but actually they can say a lot more. But I guess that's again too 
a bit too esoteric. But anyway, he became very much more familial and family. But when he come, when he came to uh, pretend I'm not here, uh, I was approached by uh, um, Enoch from First Fruits, who who read my. I think he she, uh, he read the August Moon in QRS. So and of course the book, and he said that oh he he like to publish me. So at the time I moved because I thought that he he's drawn to the the so-called opaque poems rather than the transparent poems if you're using that metaphor and i thought okay let's just go with it um so pretend i'm not here was deliberately was me saying that i don't have to give a damn about trying to please anyone i have to be myself so i wrote i mean it's a combination of poems that i wrote even during the sacramental days that never made it into sacramental but they were and also poems which I mean, it was I was in, already in the Straits Times at that time, so I was doing I was ent- entertainment editor, was you know, reviewing music, movies, and stuff. And pretend out here, I call it a collection based on the death of the author, like so you may know, uh, and the idea of you can be who you want to be in the absence of the person, the absence of the author. To pretend I'm not here, so I mean, it has that ironic thing. And then when it comes to one, the dark tower comes, so. Pretend out here is the absence, and so I highlight to sell it, <laughs> and then once dot com is the presence, yeah. So that's only one way to look at it. Um, pretend out here is also about the death of my grandmother, and yeah, that's yeah my grandmother. But there was other other deaths as well, and then one of the comes it's uh, it's the death of my father. Yes, uh, but essentially they're both death obsessed. Okay, so in terms of what you just said about programmatic, normal, uh, programmatic and whether it's uh, more... I actually thought one of the outcomes is, for me, is less difficult to access, actually. I find that the framework is... The frame is deliberately more discernible. Therefore, I think as a collection, I thought it was... I hate to say, I know it's controversial, but I thought it was actually easier to understand. <laughs> <laughs> but I meant understand in the sense that you can talk about it in terms of frame and structure, maybe not in terms of meaning per se. And I thought pretend I'm not here was more chaotic. Yeah, it was actually more like I don't like a middle finger to structure and everything. And I, in fact, I deliberately there was no, well, there was a series of poems called Memento Mori. Yeah, but I think, yes, this one is more. Uh, the latest is a little less framework-wise was more obvious. So actually, I disagree with the, your reading that this was the most difficult collection. Some people have told me, I don't know, some people have given me very conflicting things, but, but this is the first time I thought, uh, first first thing that I heard that, that this was the most difficult. I actually thought it was that. I, I, I wanted to jump in here more on a biographical point, but I love the, the phrase you just used. Um, it was, you said, a middle finger to structure, something like that. <laughs> so, so we should we should immortalize that <laughs> quote. Yeah. Um, okay, but uh, I wanted to come in on a biographical point. In some ways, what Leslie Yao did in Landmark for your book yeah. kind of reflects the times, right? Because and um, actually, there's a question here about the times. Because in some ways, you as a your trajectory as a poet in Singapore is very much out of time in the sense of when you were when you were writing yeah. and publishing, your contemporaries were writing more lyrical. Uh, yes. Uh, works they're writing more confessional uh, which makes Leslie Yao's move to edit Secret Mentor in a family oriented family oriented <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds very weird but in a, in a familial way um, uh, yeah. uh, 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 understandable so I wanted to ask really how, how you tell us a bit more about how you felt as you were writing through this um, this journey la, and it, uh, when you were writing in a way to build on the alien artifact metaphor you were an alien you were an alien in this world of lyrical and confessional poets how do you feel and, and how in some ways has that evolved I mean I wasn't published as a collection until 2001 but I was very active in the 1990s I was part of the notorious 1995 Singapore League Prize shortlisted uh, generation if you know what I'm trying to say because oh my god I'm going to throw people under the bus again no tell us more there was there was okay, without do your own research there was somebody who won it uh, that we didn't think deserved to win. Uh. The second prize person was Wei Kim Cheng, who I'm very happy to lost to, actually. 
to 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 have lost to, but I was like, mm, why this why this person who won? Not that I have nothing against him per se, but the collection wasn't. So I, I knew that this collection will not withstand the test of time. But I I knew right away that based on no name would be a classic. I was like, how is it possible that they can get it? They would get it so wrong. So anyway, I started writing in, in those times where it was quite pedantic to like in order to be a poet to that that is accepted by the establishment, meaning the universities, you have to write a certain way because you you need endorsement by certain people because they will tend to write forward for you. Have blip. nothing wrong with that. I have nothing against that because I was a late student, so these were my prof, and I mean, yeah, and yeah, so. But I knew right away that my poetry would be sidelined, marginalized. So I have to be grateful that I even got published by Lamar. Yeah. So my aim was I have to get published, right? And I don't want to. I didn't want to go into self-publishing, because then that means that that's again like you would not be credible. And then, at that time, they published poetry books in trios. I don't know. You remember? They like to publish. I was published together with To Sien Min and another oops sorry, see I forgot her name. Another poet. Anyway, that's what happened. So yeah, but anyway, so that was the time. What was the question again? It's always how did you deal with the loneliness? Oh. Go back to the question of the loneliness. I wasn't lonely in so far as I hung up with all of them. They were friends. In fact we all we all wrote very differently. Yeah, I think I felt the most like left out of all uh, in terms of the fact that there's no way I could share the most outlier. Uh. I mean, to be f- yeah, I don't want to use such a word, but basically we are friends, right? So they 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 have seen my writing. Some yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel that like they were just like I'm the odd one out, but kind of like tolerate me. But so it's fine lah. I I don't have any issue. So once I got I got published and I got feedback and maybe some no, no feedback or maybe I got a horrible review in the Straits Times, yeah. But but it's better to be reviewed than no review lah. Yeah. So, but I think pre- uh, pretend I'm not here was when I started sh- sensing the shift uh, in in the air. Mm, yeah. Like there were there was there were people who are reading, and there were people who are maybe not educated. In a certain sort of, uh, like Anglo-American tradition. Well, I don't have anything against it, but more like they they they're not just reading dead white poets. Uh, they are reading all sorts of stuff. And I was uh, educated. Uh, I did this course called Modern American Late Twentieth Century with a prof called Doctor Gilbert Adair, who introduced me to the groundbreaking works of uh, American writings. Uh, Dos Passos and all those like uh, new, uh, uh, Donald Batalme oh, ba- basically a lot of uh, uh, fiction but also poetry um, and me and somebody else called Alfie Lee who was my classmate who who's now in the New York started writing in that way very meta very language poetry language with a kind of yeah so all those schools of poetry to be fair I, I think these are traditional to me they are traditional they are how many decades old but in Singapore it has never arrived it had never arrived at that point but so I guess you're right I know one of the questions was about my uh, American inclination but for me just just that the Americans seem to be more exposed to experimentation uh, less encumbered by tradition and able to uh, reinvent themselves kind of in an American cultural way they like to kind of respond and then so I think the twentieth century's uh, writings of that time, uh, we, Alfie and I and a few other people were looking out for s- such writings that they're not easily found. They were not easily found because there was no internet. So the only outlet was to go to the library, the national library, and look and and, and, and find one or two, and then we will share, and we and then and then we we try to hoodwink the librarian to order more books. You know, and I and I read like the Village Voice, other kinds of newspapers, cultural journals. Um, so it's not really just purely uh, poetry, but it's also all the all the other cultural 
artifacts uh, that 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 we think know the like interview magazine, a lot of things that were uh, very exciting at the time. Uh, the advent of MTV. You imagine those at the time when there was no internet, so you really anything new, anything that you really would be uh, excited by, as 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 opposed to now where you have the internet. Uh, I guess there's a certain blase like, okay, I can watch this later. I'm not quite sure whether you all are sensitized to new things as 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 heartfelt as it would be for for us. Uh. I think the very fact that you did not have any choice, that you had to make an effort to find these new things, means that there's a I don't know how you all felt, but when you when you when you discover something on your own that nobody had listened to or read mm-hmm. or you felt that it was your own, right? You felt it was a baby. You felt very like possessive, and you you want to be the advocate. So I think that sense of um, passion, the kind of like nothing is given to you on a platter, unlike these days where things are around you all the time. While there's a wealth of information around you, it takes a lot more effort to find the thing that you like, and it's very more difficult to say that you discover it. Yeah. It's kind of the thrill of discovery, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that you get. Which, in a way, actually very well describes the way I felt when I first read your poetry, when I first discovered you, this alien artifact that was you. <laughs> so, but actually, the first feeling when I read Pretend I'm Not Here was actually bewilderment. And I think that speaks to the point that, actually, in some ways, although the 1920s and modernism and post-modernism and all these things were already past. Yeah. In Singapore, they hadn't quite arrived. No, so I think that was the feeling that I got, and the bewilderment slowly switched to appreciation for me after like maybe five years or so, as I begin to understand what what you were trying to do, and I think that in some ways encapsulates your reception quite well. But do you think there's a shift? Because I think now we come to the to the second part of the story, where as you said, things were beginning to shift after pretend I'm not here, and from yeah. then on to now, I feel like there has been a tremendous shift in like the the acceptance of this kind of uh, poetry and of course you winning the prize also signals a big shift la, in, in, so. in, in but Desmond Conn winning in 2016 mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean he was a friend he was also a colleague uh, in the 80s yeah, yeah I mean these are the signs but again I, I would say that that's because we are all in the same circle of you know, literary clique but I think the majority of people out there are not that you know, I'm, I still, like, they have a certain idea of what poetry should be. And I, I would not try to delude myself thinking that this means I have arrived. Yeah, I, I would like to think that there's a lot more work to be done. And literature and poetry is still seen as something that to be tolerated by most people out there. Okay. I guess I would say that the younger generation, meaning anyone that's younger than me, <laughs> uh, are very much more receptive and because you all are more well worldly and more um, yeah like very international you you literally would be educated overseas so your exposure to other ways of uh, looking at narratives meaning you know in Singapore we like to pursue a certain kind of narrative and you can't really stray either you may suffer some consequences but I mean uh, literary wise I don't mean anything else um, <laughs> yeah so I think that the young generations are not going to take the dominant narrative as the default. You would want to question and interrogate and make your own fit. And I think that's the beauty of um, the plurality of uh, styles that, that now you see in this generation. I mean, with the new Singapore poetry that, that was edited by Ko Ji Leong and Marilyn Tan, gave a good sense of the next generation of uh, poets. Yeah. So you talked about like you know, language poetry, I guess, with capital L, right? And we've, we've talked about the death of the author just now as well. Um, so for me, I think I would identify these things as traits of like, you know, post-structuralism. Yes. But obviously, this, this is something that the layman wouldn't understand. And just now you talked about how the average Singaporean, for example, still has you know, really fixed notions of what poetry is. So perhaps could you try explaining you know, post-structuralism to the layman? Uh, when people ask me to explain theories, it's just a critical theory, right? And I would just say that in a layman's sense, uh, as I do to my creative arts program mentees, I say that maybe 
don't write just because you feel like it. Maybe get a sense of your tradition that you're writing into. Okay, so I will explain the 20th century uh, as the fulcrum of where poetry shifted. So I think before that, you will you'll be writing uh, Victorian, uh, very, 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 very received forms, right? like what Hao Gong likes to use, received forms. But I think with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, you start realizing that it empowers that every man, that poetry does not have to be about, uh, doesn't have to extol elevated figures about heroes. And so everything becomes, it's possible to write about the dog, the cat, the, 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 the red wheelbarrow. So the 20th century tells you it empowers the people who are not necessarily heroes or martyrs and everything. With that comes the world wars, uh, the world war, Hardly a sense of uh, a disappointment in the human endeavor and everything, and then sometimes I'm just I'm I'm again I'm just generalizing here. Okay, please don't take my words like as if they are the, the way to only approach this. So structuralism came in because the world is hungering for structure, right? Like because Cold War, like so everything has to be, um, and of course industrialization, people uh, countries want to produce and so structures are a way to uh, understand and to to grow and to progress somehow some that's that's why in the 50s and of course in asia singapore will be later i guess that's what what happens with the they start realizing the the side effects of industrialization and that's where post-structuralism came in the idea of like looking at industrialization and, and, and structuralism and realizing came at the expense of certain values like you know like what you see now climate change so i see post-structuralism as a way to understanding uh there are waves of human endeavors that respond to the 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 uh yeah the, the previous one and then that way you will understand poetries or, or any other kind of art form as a social reflection of the changes of of that of those times so anything that is post, including language poetry, is to interrogate the structures that came before it, and then, and figuring out why that it has it formed its own fascist and authoritarian ways of looking at it, and then you start realizing you have to destroy it or reconfigure it like a label block and start building it differently, and that's when post structuralists would want to interrogate the, the ways of the world that we are now living in. Like, is it that in order to progress, you need to have certain things like coal, you know, like fossil fuels. Now, now you... So, so those are structures that uh, I guess nowadays we don't necessarily take them as that this is... You need to have that in order to progress. Yeah, so I don't know how this relates to literature. All I can say is that as someone who writes in these times, it's good to know uh, into what traditional cultures you're writing into, either in response to or in, in alignment with, so that you underst oh, understand again. You contextualize yourself in this changing world and whether you want to take on a certain cause, like maybe like, I know there's this thing called eco-poetics and stuff. Are you riding on it? Meaning you actually, you know, just latch onto it but not really contextualize it against the changes of the world then that therefore sometimes you can tell when when a collection I, I just keep it to poetry you can tell when a collection is on the surface really trendy or really uh, echoes the issues of it but actually there's nothing underneath it in terms of new revolution new ideas yeah I don't know again whether I answer your question, but that's how I would explain post-structuralists to a layman who say that, what the hell are you writing about? Yeah. I think another poetic tradition I identified would be like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but the poetics of indeterminacy. Of course. Right. Yeah, so yeah. It, the most notable figure, I guess, would be John Ashbery, right? Of course. So I think your poetry for me can be said to be indeterminate as in like meaning is kind of suspended and open to interpretation, right? So no one can say like this is the correct interpretation and going back to what you said earlier about you not knowing exactly what you mean right i think that's 
the open-endedness, I think, is part of it. But I feel like with an alien artifact, there's also an alien logic. And, you know, mm. and there's an alien logic is still a logic, right? And I think when I was reading your works, for example, mm. certain, you know, certain lines, like, there's nothing to it, alliterative tactics and uh, malapropisms, right? Yeah. So, obviously, I think for me, there is a method to the madness. So, my question is, how do you deliberately write and right. edit in order to evoke that kind of indeterminacy? Mm. Okay. I guess the word in- indeterminacy to me also means capturing accurately the intimacy. So actually, it's not indeterminate as in vagueness. Uh. So do not confuse or conflict indeterminacy with not knowing or, or drifting. It's actually a, 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 fate, a, a state of hum- humility to not confine yourself to a inertia or a form or a definition in perpetuity. So that's what I would define it. Oops, sorry, that definition again. <laughs> you mentioned certain phrases that I use like in things with trust, you know. Some of the, okay, I can tell you for sure because I don't want to, you know, lead you on too long. Oops. <laughs> These are allusions to certain phrases. I'm sure you know. Yeah, some, some of them could be like slogans. Uh, so you could pick up, like I heard this before. These are slogans from a particular movement or maybe even an advertising campaign. So the idea of over, overhearing certain things that you walk along the streets and you hear certain things or, you know, like advertisements and stuff. It's very much a Ashbarian uh, tactic as well like a lot of coupled uh, phrases, uh, uh, quotations. So he was probably the first one to accurately reflect how humans actually talk. Just like, uh, who's that filmmaker who made uh, films about... Oh, yeah, I know. Robert Altman. If you if you know Robert Altman films, just check out any of his films. You will see that characters over... They talk over each other. You don't have the very, like... Again, I'm stereotyping like you would have speaker A say finish, then speaker B will reply. It's that the idea of how y'all actually talk is unrealistic. The real the realistic when you're hang out with your friends. I mean, unlike this podcast where we are trying to be very formal and, and clear with what trying to say. The truth is that we will inevitably speak over each other. And that's that's why I thought the idea of intimacy is that. Is that you will never have uh, uh, everything in complete sentences. You would have a lot of, you know, in, uh, interruption, interjection, and layers of uh, people talking over each other or correction. So much so that sometimes you don't even, yeah, you don't hear very clearly somebody else in the background. But you want to hear. You you are. And I think that's what um, Ashbury uh, another poet of mine, John Yao, that I like, uh, uh, people like that who are writing about those echoes in the background that you will actually want to hear more because somehow you find, oh, they're actually more interesting than the people who are now just pontificating to me face to face now. And that's also what I like in, in films, right? Like, for instance, some of the films that I enjoy, maybe the main characters are supposedly the, the you know the heroes and but actually those characters are not that emotional you like the side character you like the gay best friend of Julia Roberts in the kind of rom-com so that's where this film in this case this film come alive so the idea of what you're told to like what you're told to project your attention to is a little too dogmatic and I like to explore those maybe throwaway sentences, characters that are sidelined, um, characters that, are, that, that you're told that you're supposed to hate or um, yeah, like not uh, take seriously. And you put them, not put them in the middle, but you try to incorporate them into a world in which they have a point of view. They can, yeah, they, they, they are not treated as if they are sidelined. I guess that's how I felt about my position then, uh, 10 over years ago. Always look for the, 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 the underdog. That's what I would say. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, actually, so in some ways, you're talking about the underdog and, and in some ways, not the unimportance of prizes and these forms of like outward recognition. But also, in some ways, you have become part of the establishment. Yes, I know. I'm very aware <laughs> of it. <laughs> because you became director, 
yeah. of the SWF and then you won the prize and you know, so on and so on and so forth. So how, how, in some ways, tell us a little bit about that and also tell us a bit about your role as SWF mm. director and what that was like. So that's the, yeah, yeah. the, the I mean, I never planned yeah. to become one. I was on the committee. The, at the time, they have a steering committee that, were, that comprised uh, folks from the scene. Uh, like I represented the Straits Times because I was working in the Straits Times. But of course, as I, I was also a poet, right? So I was on the steering committee for many years. And then in 1990, they asked whether I was interested. At that time, I wasn't interested. But I sort of realized that ah, I could introduce certain literatures or poetries of authors who seldom appear on the scene. So it kind of uh, uh, intruder sort of way, trying to introduce all, all those things that I feel have not been represented in Singapore. Meaning that you will not be the usual dead white, oh sorry, it cannot be dead, <laughs> living white poets. But it also includes writers who write in different traditions and stuff. And, uh, and also introducing other interdisciplinary programming, which you know, um, music, uh, films, dance. There, was, there, were, there were things that I, I thought would be easier to uh, promote literature because these are art forms that I always view as more glamorous than literature. Like you don't have to, you don't have to read a play before you watch a play. You can watch a play knowing zero about anything about it. And then come out and say, I can talk about the play. But there's no way you can talk about a book without reading the book. Right? And it's a lot more torturous, a lot more lonely, a lot more like you cannot wink it. You cannot, you cannot, um, you cannot bluff your way through a, a, a book of poetry without reading the book and talking to the poet and say, I got no, I haven't read a book, but what is the book about? You can't. So SWF became a platform for me to try to make literature or make yeah make, make writing more strangely I would use that word accessible here uh, more more interesting more intriguing um, rather than the usual we still have those panels and stuff and lectures but also to actualize the writing in ways in which you can enjoy for instance uh, commissioning uh, plays, commissioning uh, uh, theatre, uh, no, uh, dance thing or inter uh, translation. So all those things that were, that maybe now you see very, very common at that time wasn't. Uh, yeah. So I also there were, the language uh, groups were very siloed. Like, wait, honestly, do you attend a Malay program? Would you, on your own? You would want to do that by having them on the same panel with other language, but in a way in which, oh, okay, I can, I can otherwise you, would, you only exalt programs that are from your linguistic comfort zone. I was a journalist at the time, so I quit and I, I joined NEC to become the festival director. And I, I treated that as a way to introduce programming and, and writers that hopefully Singaporeans are like, oh, I never thought. I think, for instance, uh, Daryl here would be... I know you were very interested in John Yao when he came, right? Yeah. I have a single question, but now it's actually a cheeky one, which is uh, goes back to the poetry. So you talked about death obsession in the previous, in the, your last two books. And of course, if you know your Freud, death is often combined with Eros, so Thanatos and Eros. And actually, if you read your poetry, there is an undercurrent of sex. There's a sexuality, there is a innuendo that you talk about sadomasochism so yeah. I'm going to ask you a question what does what role does sexuality play in your poetry um well there's a lot of sexual innuendos and sexuality is a platform where a lot of things that cannot be said can be can be channeled or enacted through to sexual um Role playing and stuff. I think Memento Mori, the the first poem on that in that series, he has been re, uh, kind of analyzed by Ko Ji Leong in an essay. I think it's available on Curious, and I, I think he picked up a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the allusions to films that uh, or characters that that use sex or things like that. Um, and I think sex is the final frontier for, for, for our, our straight-laced society. 
I guess I in this, at this point I would like to mention someone like Marilyn Tan, who's uses, sorry Marilyn, who uses sex very 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 in a very open and explicit way, but also in a very creative and interesting, using um, witchcraft and all those stuff. And I like, and it also crosses down boundaries between high culture and low culture, and I like that. Yeah. And films have a lot of sex and how they project sex. Um, it's the platform for some topics which we would not talk, want to talk about uh, in Singapore, but you can use sexuality to discuss uh, gender roles, uh, politics, um, all those things which straight-laced societies will want to pigeonhole into binary oppositions. Uh. And it's, it's uh, where you can let down your guard, literally strip naked and and be yourself, la, your authentic selves, whatever. And also in the privacy of whatever you, where you are with a partner. And those are the things which I think I like to explore in writing. I think one question for me, I think more to do with poetic uh, craft would be the question of form, right? I think... I mean, you're a writer who is very sensitive to form. For example, you justify your use of twin cinema when it comes to discussing themes of duality, multiplicity, for example. And I think one form that, you know, personally puzzles me is prose poem. Um, so could you share about how you view that form? A prose poem looks like prose, but behaves like poetry. That would be my facetious way of explaining it. What that means is that it really does look like prose passages, right? Paragraph, the paragraph. It doesn't have the stanzaic thing. But when you read it, it doesn't have the logic of prose, meaning, you know, traditional short story. It has the spirit of poetry. It means that when you read prose, uh, prose poem, it may not follow a narrative thread. It may not. It may, it may not. So it does play against types. Lah. So a prose poem is the, is the offspring of the best of both of these two genres. I want to say that uh, I've seen a lot of prose poems written, supposedly call themselves prose poems, but they're not prose poems. They're just prose passages because they are just about a topic and they explain very clearly. It's point A to point B. It's very systematic, it's, but it's not a prose poem. A prose poem uh, should actually reconfigure the direction of how logic is and therefore when you you never know where you're going to end up if it's very logically explained then it's not a prose poem that's my very autocratic way of explaining it yeah i think another question i had with regard to form right i mean actually i haven't read pretend i'm not here so i've only read secret mentor and one to the dark tower comes but um in one to the dark tower comes there's like a structure as you said, a framework. You know, first yeah, the calendar in self-contents. Yeah. And then throughout the collection, it's interspersed with you know, the quarterly reports as yeah. well as um, a slit from sternum to pitzel. So could you talk more about why you chose to work with like this kind of structure? I think time. Time is the underlying element that links all of this. I find that time... Yes, cat. Yes. Time is, uh, is what we are. Time, def- oh, okay, they define. Time is a capsule of who you are at a particular point, rather than um, thinking that it, you will remain unchanged. So pretend I'm not here was rather out of time. Um, well, one of the outcome it's almost like a durational art where you feel the, the change in histories and decades and centuries. So quarterly reports is a kind of cheeky way of trying to adopt the corporate speak, right? Quarterly reports, what's your, what have you done in the last three months, that kind of thing. Then you realize, oh, it doesn't have the form of a quarterly reports. In each quarterly report, you have a particular uh, set of rules or like one is a, a kind of like flotation system. It's all those are supposedly you know twenty first century living terms and uh, and 
institutions or, or buildings or uh, machinery that, that we are used to. And then within that, I try to break down uh, how you can view yeah, like just cycling or so. So you use very very uh, late um, modern uh, conveniences, and then you try to uh, demystify it in a way. As opposed, to, okay, a slate from Sterner Pixel, it's a kind of double play, but it's also about how you butcher, right? So it's a kind of husbandry, a kind of vertical heights and stuff. It's a combination of um, my response to the 9-11 yeah, so the first poem is about 9-11 about the invisible jumper and then it moves to like the Egyptians and how the, how Singapore, uh, Singaporeans and human beings well, Singaporeans especially like to build tall yeah, obelisks and uh, basically we always aim for higher and higher and higher um, so it has both the, the lateral and the vertical. I think when I was comparing like Secret Mentor and One to Dark Power Counts, uh, I think this is just like a kind of Easter egg, I guess. Like, um, I noticed that you used the words Mirror Lake and also oh. like the symbol of the tower, I think, yeah. um, in Secret mm. Mentor as well. Yeah. So what do these symbols, I guess, represent or evoke for you? Yeah. I mean, I'm just obsessed with uh, objects of mystery, right? I mean, mirror lakes, lakes and towers in general uh, have been there forever, right? Throughout human history or even prehistory, right? Lakes, when you travel around the world, humans are generally drawn into bodies, drawn to bodies of water, either the sea or lakes, right? Um, and that's also become um, the center of human activities. Lakes become I mean, lakes are where human civilization begin. A lot of them, right? Uh, towers are what I just said about that we tend to build. These are also monuments of uh, to you know heroes and to loved ones, but also kind of to show the pinnacle of our uh, human ability to uh, conquer and to scale and maybe reach heavens. And when you when when I travel, I'm, I'm sure you do too. You would be drawn. I'm, I'm sure you. I'm sure most and most everyone would, would try to go to, like you go to New York City. You will go to the. You might have gone to the, the Twin Towers, yeah. So things like that, and you go to Chicago, yeah. So all those things, I would always use the tower as a marker, right, of where you are. Literally, geographically, like I'm lost, but I know that's so. I have a sense of where you are. And I use that as a metaphor to say, uh, as a as a directional marker, as a as a milestone to represent human achievement. Uh, so all those so one of the tower comes becomes almost as if I'm trying to uh, understand human human beings and how they uh, how far we have come or how much we haven't come, in the sense that what is the continuity uh, that link an Egyptian uh, building the pyramid to the, the, the modern tower, right? It sounds completely bon uh, like ambitious and uh, pretentious. But when I, when I started writing, I started with the quarterly reports. If it, can, if it helps you to understand the, the germination of this collection, it was the quarterly reports that I had in mind. Then everything else falls into place when it was also about the death yeah, of my my father. And so death, living, history, all this come to play. I never explained I never explained this in this detail. I hope it doesn't really make the reading less interesting. It just hopefully lends a different complexion. Yeah. But what I'm telling you is just one way of reading it. Yeah. Yeah. One last question and um, would be about you know, other art forms or media, for example, because, I mean, that is something that really, I guess, marks you up from other writers. Um, so what do you think poetry can do that other art forms cannot do? The, the, the difficulty or the limitation of poetry is precisely its strength, that it requires you to 
read the word, whatever punctuation, the semantics and everything. You literally have to wrestle with whatever you see, you know, on on paper or you know on the computer. And that's where uh, it should be because it does not reveal its secrets at first glance. Like a, again, I'm being a bit facetious. So like a movie, you know, where it's visuals, right? Or so, you have it's it's so um, it's so selfish and so uh, private uh, art form that you have no choice but to spend time with it or be repulsed by it and say, "I'm not going to spend more time with this writing because it's so crap or it's so obtuse or it's whatever." So if you really intrigue, I guess good writing would be. To answer your previous question is that would be good writing that you don't understand at first reading. I know people would say the other way around, but I think when you don't understand it, it could be that you have not kept, you have not caught up with it. That you needed to grow like like for instance, the first time I, I read T. S. Eliot, whatever, four quartets, proof rock, whatever. It's like I don't think I understand understood yeah whatever but the point is that as you grow older you appreciated it so you use other words right don't you agree and then you realize wow this this does the secrets reveal itself themselves when 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 somehow you have your mind and uh, your synapses and everything thought oh yeah that's why poetry is the art form that is demanding it's completely toxic it's very generous. It will reveal its, you know, secrets or sexuality, everyone. Uh, only if you are equally open and willing to let yourself be immersed in it. If you come with a certain expectations that I'm studying this for my O level or A level and I do want to score A, I'm not saying you can't, but you're not doing yourself favor by appreciating the poetry for its sake. You know, the, the idea of art for art's sake, the idea that why do you have to explain the fun, like, do you have to explain the meaningfulness or the usefulness of art or poetry or anything? Then you're missing the point. Uh. Yeah. If you only do things that are functional, then you might as well just be an animal, right? You do things because they are pleasurable, they are fun, they are, they are pointless, actually. Because if you do things that are full of, like, there is the point to it, you would not have pleasure. You'll hate it. You'll be a cog in the machine. And that's it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed, do share this podcast with your friends. It means a lot to us. Have a nice day. Goodbye. Goodbye.